We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. It's Monday, August 29th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I do want to, sometimes I do this, just to amuse myself. I say to myself, but Trump, he wasn't all bad. Okay, he's all bad as a person. But the outgrowth, the product of the Trump administration, it can't be all bad. And when people talk about it not being all bad, the one or two things that people say, they usually talk about the Abraham Accords. There was some progress, at least on paper, among the countries of the Middle East. Others who really care about such things talk about moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. That was seen as an achievement. People who are dot-in-the-wall conservatives or just in the thrall of Trump will cite his other achievements, which I generally think are not achievements. There is a whole bunch of them, or the opposite of achievement, and then a whole bunch of others are just things he always said that actually didn't really come to pass. I don't think his tariffs uh, brought China to his knees, did much of anything, even though they're still in place. But I want to be really fair, and I realize I've never said this on the show. So there are two things that Trump did that made the world better, at least made America better. And one is quite shocking because it was a real reversal of a specific Obama policy. And in fact, a policy most associated with the most popular Obama, Michelle Obama. So Michelle Obama, quite famously, infamously, if you're on the right, she wanted to have healthier standards. I was about to say healthy, but healthier standards for school lunches. And so they implemented a policy where a fruit or a vegetable would be put on every kid's plate. And also, and this was big, the only kind of milk you could have was skim milk. And then after the Obamas were out of office, the Trumpites came in. Don't know if Trump knew at all about this policy at all, but Scott Pruitt of the EPA and others did. And they said, it is not right that the kids can only drink skim milk. We're going to give them the 1%. We're going to give them the 2%. We're even going to give them non-skim chocolate milk. And do you know what? This wasn't just popular among our milk-loving children of America. This was actually scientifically proven to be the better option. Because with skim milk, kids would just throw it out. And when extra vegetables and fruits were forcibly put on people's plates, kids would just throw it out. Milk consumption of all kinds did go up when the skim milk only requirement was relaxed. And as far as requiring a fruit or vegetable on a plate, there was a massive study. The basic question explored was, does requiring a child to select a fruit or vegetable actually correspond with consumption? And the answer, the lead author of that study concluded, the answer was clearly no. A bonafide scientist, not a political appointee. In doing research for this, I came across such sentences as, on February 4th, USDA extended the emergency flexibility put in place by the Trump administration that allowed chocolate 1% milk to be served in schools in addition to nonfat milk and plain 1%. It was quite a solution. It was quite a positive development. The Biden administration has not rolled it back. There is milk in school. What is the other positive development? that we can attribute to the Trump administration. Donald Trump held the Chinese feet to the fire when it came to postal rates. I read to you now from parcelandposttechnologyinternational.com. In 2019, President Donald Trump staged a showdown with the Universal Postal Union over what he regarded as China's unfair postal rates. 
His resulting victory saw U.S. packet rates increase by an average of 50%. China was paying rock bottom rates, the rates that very poor countries paid. They had these rates hadn't been updated. No one pointed out, you know, China is the second biggest economy in the world. I will again read from PMPTechInternational.com the way they paint the picture. A dramatic meeting in September 2019 resulted in a high noon style showdown between the USA and the UPU that threatened to destroy postal rates agreements across the world. In the event, Trump's team won the day. That's right. They stared the Chinese across the table and China, or at least the UPU, those who set the postal rates, they blinked. So we don't know about this. We don't talk about this. The Biden administration did not reverse this. Today, we in the United States have fairer postal rates. China no longer mails packages to us on the cheap. Thank you, Donald Trump. So long. And thanks for all the 1% milk. On the show today, Megan Daum, host of the Unspeakable podcast, is here to talk about the mid-career pivot. But first, Jay Baruch is a practicing emergency room physician, professor of emergency medicine at Albert Medical School of Brown University. He is also a fine, fine writer. He's published two books of fiction, and he is now out with a memoir. During the pandemic, I remember coming across Baruch's essays thinking about the overwhelming days he and all emergency room personnel were facing. And he brings those to the show, those and other insights into being a doctor in America today. Dr. Jay Baruch, up next. Jay Baruch is an emergency room physician, professor of emergency medicine at Brown University, the author of two books of short fiction, and now a memoir, Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Tale of Constraints and Creativity in the ER. I could say for certain he's the only ER doctor I know who has ever given a hug as part of his therapy, but I think maybe came to regret it. Jay, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. So... I tore into this book and through this book wanting to know COVID, 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 all the COVID stories, and there are some. I came out not even realizing that that was my initial motivation because it was just fascinating to sit with an ER doctor and think about how you think about life in the ER. So could you just, first of all, give us a sense of, I know you've been writing for a while, but was the book meant to be, or how much COVID was meant to be in the book? When was it commissioned? And when did the COVID wave start hitting as you were writing? Well, it's interesting, Mike, because we signed the contract to to write this book right before COVID started. So it really wasn't supposed to be a COVID book, and it's not really a COVID book, but there's no way it can't not be. COVID can't be in there considering how, what we've all gone through, you know, people in healthcare and and in our communities over the last couple of years. Yeah, and the first time I came across your name to my conscious knowledge was you wrote something for Stat News, which is a great site, and you bring some literary flair to it. And it was about how you uh, navigated when patients weren't vaccinated and the vaccines were readily available and America, much of vaccinated America, was feeling really resentful. And then you came in as an ER doctor saying not the most productive response 
to the unvaccinated. How did that essay that you wrote at the time, how did uh, you want to deal with at least that sentiment in the book, which came out upon reflection a little bit later? Yeah, I mean, that was, I never thought, Mike, that trying to be reasonable about this was going to be such a contentious idea and one that would um, allow the piece itself to gain the attention that it did, which I think it went viral in a, in a small way. And, and part of it was motivated by the fact that it was so politicized and people on the right were screaming and the people on the left were screaming. And and my own experiences in the emergency department actually having conversations with patients, they were those people who were not vaccinated often were not vaccinated for many, many different reasons. And and those voices were not being heard. And they weren't like trying to make a stand. They weren't being political. They were scared. They were distrusting. They had no one to talk to about this challenging issue of like, this is a new vaccine. Can I, can I trust it? Um, is it dangerous? Um, they have general mistrust of the healthcare system because we, you know, that the pandemic has on, has revealed that, you know, it has exposed a lot of health inequities that's been going on. And we have a lot of people who just don't have care, their basic needs met, and should they take a chance on a vaccine? Um, and then there were people who would, who were sort of looked down upon for choices that they didn't necessarily have as a choice. For example, being able to sort of stay at home. Like when you have to work mm -hmm. two or three jobs and your ability to actually pay the rent or, you know, put food on the table for your kids, you don't have the the privilege to be able to stay home. So you had to work. And sometimes you're balancing conflicting needs and the discussions were challenging and not easily resolved. So there was a certain portion of people mad at you for writing the essay because they don't believe in vaccines and maybe right. we could call them the right, although horseshoe theory uh, dictates that there were some maybe on the left who came to believe that. But there were other people, um, I guess, good liberals who believed in vaccines who had the attitude of uh, they're making me unsafe. I have a couple questions. One is knowing what we know now, I remember when the vaccines came out and that certainly seemed like the best and most um, morally imperative reason to get vaccinated no matter what you thought you were making other people safe. But from what you know, did that bear out as much as uh, we were told it would bear, bear out? Because I, I mean, at least more than anecdotally, there are many vaccinated people who can pass COVID on, although maybe they don't do it as much as non-vaccinated people. But what do you know about the they're making me unsafe argument. I I think it took a little bit of a leap of faith. I mean, I know for myself, I mean, when I, it was a new technology, right? Um, the messenger RNA technology that was being used to create this vaccine, um, an extraordinary vaccine in record time. Um, and, you know, I think any reasonable person had had their doubts a little bit. Okay, like, is this is this safe? All I know for myself is that when the vaccine came out, I was like one of the first people in line because I felt like yeah. I, I had to I had to get this. In order for me to get to work to show up to work to care for others, I needed to I needed to do this. 
And and I'm right. glad I did. What I actually was getting oh. at is the people who were so upset by your essay, the very fact that you held the hands and showed compassion to people who oh, were resisting. Yeah. And the people who were quite upset would often say, you know what? This isn't about your selfishness. This is about my safety. You not getting vaccinated makes me unsafe. And yes. I was just wondering medically, how true was that argument? Yeah, I... You know, I see that argument. Like I, I understand. I understand that argument, and I, I live that argument. Like, like going to work. I mean, and it's not just making us safe or unsafe regarding COVID. The number of cases and people, and with each wave, who came, patients who came in with COVID, they impacted the care of everyone. People who came in with a heart attack. People who came in with strokes. People who right. came in with infections because we only had so much space and how many rooms. So people waited. So it really impacted the care of everyone, whether you had COVID or not. So ideally, you'd like to get everyone as not just vaccinated, but hopefully making decisions that would reduce the chances of of, of, both of themselves getting infected and, and then infecting others. However, what I noticed, Mike, and what I heard in response to the that particular piece that I wrote is I heard, I got, I got long emails from people who didn't get vaccinated, who that were beautiful and eloquent, explaining why they didn't get vaccinated. You know, and I thought that that was the voice that was not being heard. Like they wanted to be heard and they weren't necessarily against being convinced, um, but they weren't being spoken to in a way that was respectful and dignified and that answered and addressed their concerns. As you were dealing, especially with COVID, was it occurring to you in the book, you make reference to, you know, our system, not just the disease, but our system. What is it occurring to you that if we had a different type of medical system, one that you've not operated in, but maybe you're aware of through your Canadian or German peers or whatever, things would have been appreciably different for you, for the nurses in the ER, for everyone who was uh, dealing with this terrible pandemic? Yeah, I mean, our... Our system, I mean, we were, you know, for example, like the crowding problem, you know, you know, in, in the emergency departments that was really sort of amplified during the pandemic and, the, and successive waves in the pandemic as people, you know, could not get the care that they, they were supposed to during the pandemic or they had to put off procedures or they had to, people got sicker, substance use increased, mental health problems increased, you know, you can go through all the data. And, um, but a lot of that was there before that, right? So like yeah. the, the pandemic was the pressure, like if you even look at the pandemic as a story in our lives, it was the pressure that, that exerted itself in such a way that it could no longer be ignored by, by any of us, by the powers that be. And our system was in trouble. I mean, our system was in trouble before the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we have too many people who, who we have health, equi health inequity problems, which, you know, got augmented and amplified during the pandemic. That's not going away anytime soon. It's actually getting worse. We have an older population of people with multiple medical problems. And unfortunately, the system with... <laughs> 
with this multiple phone call, just making a phone call to your doctor requires like four different clicks. You know, a, me- yeah. a mechanical voice telling you to hold on to go to a different mechanical voice that goes to a different mechanical voice that maybe says you, and then they go like, your your health matters to us. <laughs> and if it did, why does it take four mechanical clicks to get to this? And then someone will call you back and you might talk to a human, you might not. Someone will call you back and I can't tell you how many times I have people come to the emergency department and, and I ask, do you have a doctor? Yes. Did you call them? Yes. They never got back in touch with me. And this is not to blame anyone because like they're overwhelmed too. We are a moral, I'm sorry. I mean, I might be totally idealistic, Mike, but I do believe that medicine and to be a physician or to be a nurse or to be involved in the care of others has a moral grounding. You know, and unfortunately, the financial and the politicalization of the healthcare system has taken that away. And in the end, it hurts patients. Patients are not commodities for someone's balance sheet. You know, and there's no way to avoid the fact that, you know, we, we need to put people first. We need to put patients back in the center of what, it, of what, of our healthcare system. Yeah. So I want to ask you about a couple stories in your book that illustrate uh, larger points. There are two stories I think that get to the same point that I want to talk about. One is you use pseudonyms. Carlos, maybe a guy who came in who could have been presenting COVID symptoms. But what you did is you didn't stop there. You, in fact, talk about the gutters, which are the gaps in the story he was telling that could yeah. lead to COVID. And he had, he had what? Was it appendicitis? He ended up having appendicitis, yeah. Yeah. And then there was another woman, very well-dressed, smelled better than anyone in the ER, yeah. including the doctors and nurses, who was there and presenting vague symptoms. But if you didn't ask the right question or think about it as, well, what's the big story here? You would have missed that the real reason she was there was what? Was she was um, um, she was married. She had been a victim of interpersonal violence right. for years and years and years. And um, and she was sort of talking around the the issue. And, and this is sort of very common. Like she came with, with vague complaints. And this was very early sort of in my in my career and i and i write how i was conscientious and diligent and um and yet i lacked all imagination right I, imagination <laughs> right you know i didn't i was so focused on what she might have and trying to make sense of her symptoms and with that when it didn't fit i didn't step back at that time to ask why like why are you here this doesn't make sense what questions should i be asking that i'm not asking how should i approach this differently and um yeah and in the end you know it was only until you know the entire evening when she was spent and through the night that i asked in the morning uh, i apologized to her the fact that i couldn't come up with a good reason why she had the symptoms that she did, and I asked if we can call anybody, and she sort of alluded to not calling her her husband. And I said, like, basically, she just, like, opened the door wide open, and I and I ro- rolled myself in a ball of shame <laughs> and went inside. And yeah. she basically made it, like, threw me, just threw me a fat fastball that even I couldn't miss. 
Her story, Carlos's story, gets right to the subtitle, A Doctor's Tale of Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Right. And what you're talking about with creativity is not just you're a literate and literary guy. It's to be more creative right. in the stories that you tell yourself and how you get at the patient's story. Right. So that is vital and maybe hasn't been done. But I also think of the old adage, when you hear hooves, think of horses, not zebras. Right. And I know there's a zeb woman who thought she was a zebra right. in the book, but right. putting that aside... Right. <laughs> Think of horses, not zebras. So how I I take your point of that we need to at times, all the time, think with creativity. But on the other hand, we need to be convergent thinkers uh, to get to the right diagnosis. And it seems very hard or at least interesting to know how to navigate that line. How have you thought about navigate, navigating the when do you think of zebras and when do you just hear the horse hubs? Yeah, that's, and that's the critical question, right? Like, how do you change your way of thinking? Um, and part of the message of the book is that we as clinicians need to be a little bit more savvy into how we think. You know, for so for artists, for example, like where you sort of document your process, you know, you're more intimate. Like what you end up producing is often the end result of just a series of decisions that you made along the way, including, you know, things that work, things that didn't work, but you're trying, you're iterating, you're iterating, you're iterating. Um, but that kind of thinking, which I think, which I believe is inherent and encouraged in people who are doing more creative work, is oftentimes va is valued differently than I think in medicine, which which is to be stuck, is to be wrong, or to miss something, yeah. or to be or to have like a negative connotation to it. Right, right. Like there's no such thing as a doctor's block. You right. couldn't admit to that. <laughs> I've got a do sorry doctor's block. But you lost, lost a couple. But you know what, patients. And, and we get back to this idea about uncertainty, right? Like we're not like people who work in the arts, people who are working in in different spheres of the imagination. They they value uncertainty. It's a place where I start my inquiry. This is kind of an interesting place, you know. Like I got the, the book emanated from the from this idea of like you know no one's writing about what we don't know and 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 how do we how do I struggle with uncertainty? How do I write a book about the fact that I'm not perfect and that I'm struggling yeah. and this is how I'm struggling? Okay, so I'm going to use this as my place of entry point. This is my place of inquiry. And when I notice that when I have conversations with patients about, hey, I don't quite know what you have, but this is what I'm thinking, you know, and is there anything else you want to tell me or asking different sets of questions, patients I find are really encouraged and grateful for that type of conversation. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, my role is to, is to say, God, you know, what you're going through is hard. And I think it's I think it's incredible the amount of the, the what what you're doing like this is like I know you're frustrated but this is what's amazing like I couldn't I couldn't wake up and take eight medications or ten medications right, right but to give legitimacy and to really honor and dignify the experiences that people have which oftentimes the medical problems are not that might not be giant and earth shattering but the impact on their lives are. You uh, referencing the art, how artists work or people who think 
differently and creatively. And when they get stuck, it's not seen as shameful. In fact, it's an opportunity to get unstuck and it's good to have that sort of orientation for your profession. However, in the arts, you know, when Jasper Johns got (laughs) stuck, there was no right answer as to where that paint should splatter or anyone, even Arthur Miller, right? There's no right answer. But with what you do, there is. And if you get the wrong answer, it's not just that, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's last movie wasn't as good as his first three. It's dire. So isn't that a little different? And how do you account for that? Yeah. So if you're having if you're having chest pain, you know, and I should keep a certain number of things forefront of my mind, right? Like I'm like, are you having a heart attack? If you have a heart attack, I better well better damn diagnose that heart attack. You right. know? So yes, there are those situations, and there are many situations where there's a recognizable problem, a diagnosable problem with a solution. And I got to nail that. You know, I ha- that's where my training comes in. I got to nail that. Um, but oftentimes people come in with symptoms where their diagnosis might not be so clear, right? Or they might have what's sometimes called medically unexplained symptoms where mm-hmm. people are really, you know, they got a bunch of tests and maybe they maybe they're they don't point to identifiable diagnosis, but but they're having real symptoms. They're in real distress. How do you respond to that? So it's not like one or the other. Your point is so valid, Mike. But hopefully, 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 you know, I'm I'm hitting the bullseye on those right. that have an identifiable problem, and I'm and I'm and I'm making that diagnosis. But at the same time, I'm also addressing and being open to other possibilities, and I know how to have conversations and hopefully comfort and maybe come up with some intermediary solutions or respond in a meaningful way for those people whose diagnoses are less clear. Jay Baruch is an emergency room physician, a professor of emergency medicine at the Alpert Medical School at Brown University, and the author of the new book, Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Tale of Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Dr. Baruch, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. This was absolutely awesome. Megan Daum is an essayist, a columnist, a podcaster. Her latest book was The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the Culture Wars. Her podcast, in which she interviews fascinating people, including me, as I said, fascinating, podcast is called The Unspeakable. I must speak of it because it's one of my favorite podcasts. And she has another podcast out these days that she does alongside Sarah Hader. It's called A Special Place. In this spiel, which was recorded a couple of years ago when Megan took a break, a schedule break from the unspeakable, she talks about the realities of the mid-career pivot. These days, we hear about a lot of people who are making a lot of money on Substack and didn't know whether they should leave their legacy media organization, but it really worked out. Well, that's who we hear from. We hear from the winners. When the premise is, should I take a bet on myself? It's a self-selecting group of those who are left standing to answer, I did and it worked out. Megan is honest about what happened to her for her mid-career pivot. After it's done, as I said, this was recorded a couple years ago. I will join you again to talk about how it all worked out. But here with the spiel, Megan Down. I am 51 years old. 
And I have never hustled so hard in my life as I have over the last few years, professionally speaking. I have never worked so many hours, so unrelentingly, and still felt so unmoored, so overwhelmed, so clueless about how I'm supposed to go about doing my job. I'm talking about pretty much every aspect of being a freelance writer. So much has changed about how you promote your work, what you can expect from editors, from sales departments, from readers themselves. After almost 30 years in the same career, I have never felt like more of a beginner. And the reason I'm bothering to tell you all this is because I know for a fact that I am not the only one who feels this way. Many of us, especially people roughly in my age group, the Gen Xers that I spend too much time talking about, seem to be in some form of tortured relationship with this now ubiquitous concept commonly referred to as the pivot, the professional pivot. In case you haven't encountered this concept, the pivot, in the most basic terms, has to do with adjusting to the fact that the old way of conducting your professional life, no matter what it is, doesn't really apply anymore and you need to change with the times. Even before COVID changed the work equation for so many people, the center had long stopped holding when it came to a lot of people's assumptions about what was necessary to stay afloat as a financially independent adult. Now, obviously, there are countless permutations of this phenomenon. The disruptive technology of the digital economy has literally disrupted the paths and in many cases scorched the livelihoods of working people at every point on the socioeconomic map. But what I think a lot of creative people are experiencing, people like the podcasters you listen to, is a sense of having to adjust not even to a new set of rules, but to the fact that there aren't really any rules anymore. At least there are far fewer rules than there used to be. And while that's exciting, it's also just really overwhelming. There's a degree of difficulty that I think we sometimes underestimate or don't fully recognize. I'm going to add on to the point I made earlier. It's not only that I've been doing my career for three decades and have never felt more like a beginner. I think I feel more like a beginner today than I did back when I actually was a beginner. Now, maybe that's because when you're young and doing something for the first time, it's hard to grasp the level of difficulty because you have nothing to compare it to. When I was 22 and making $18,000 a year at a grueling, often emotionally abusive job, and then coming home and writing at night in the hopes of rising out of my entry-level predicament, it didn't occur to me that what I was doing was especially hard. It was just what you did to get to the next rung of the ladder. But, and I think this is key, as grim and demoralizing as those lower rungs were, the situation felt manageable because at least I could look up and see the rest of the ladder. I knew where I needed to go. I could see people around me who were at various points on that ladder and imagine myself getting there someday. What I'm saying is that at 20, I can imagine life at 30 and from there 40 and where I am today, 50. Let me emphasize that I was fully aware that it wouldn't be all smooth sailing and straightforward. First of all, I grew up in a family where, for most of my childhood and adolescence, the only means of support came from my father's often very shaky freelance career in music. Financial uncertainty is baked into me. I have a very strong stomach for not knowing where the next check is coming from, and that has its rewards as well as its drawbacks. There have also been historically some weird quirks in my ambitions, not to mention my personality. 
And that made the road a pretty windy one. And yes, I just changed my cliche metaphors from ladders to roads. I made some unusual choices. For instance, moving to Nebraska for no discernible reason when I was 30. And that's to say nothing of my decision in the last several years, though it wasn't really a decision, my conscience left me no choice, to refuse to participate in the mainstream media's complicity in its own hostage-taking by ideological enforcers. If I'd played along with that, I might have a salaried job right now. But given that a salaried job wasn't something I'd aspired to even before these new cultural battles arose, that's not a pity party I'm keen to throw. My point is that even factoring in all my professional and personal eccentricities, I never thought I'd get to 50 and feel so much like I did at 25. I never thought I'd feel this overwhelmed. And I think that's the third time I've used the word overwhelmed in this little talk. But I guess there's a reason. I never thought I'd feel this overwhelmed by the amount of balls I had to keep in the air. And frankly, this confused about what those balls are even supposed to be made out of. I never thought I'd be begging for help and advice from younger, often much younger people, as often as I do. Interestingly, 10 years ago, at 40, I did not feel this way. At 40, I felt like I was in a place professionally that my 25-year-old self would have approved of, would have even felt comforted by. Like my 25-year-old self would have looked at my 40-year-old self and said, okay, yes, that's where I'm headed. Fair enough. But by 50, all bets were off. It was like the record needle had scratched all the way across the vinyl and left the tone arm hanging off the side of the turntable like a dangling limb. If that seems like an outdated reference, a pathetically Gen X one at that, it's no accident. That's because the more I think about this whole idea of the professional pivot, the more I think that my generation is affected by it in a uniquely tyrannical way. Now, I was going to say uniquely challenging, since that seems nicer and less whiny. But speaking for myself and watching so many friends and colleagues in my age group attempt their own pivots, I don't think tyranny is too strong a word. And here's why. As brilliantly as some of us have adapted to the digital landscape, not a single one of us is a digital native. We were just born too early for that. If the internet were a spoken language, even the most eloquent and proficient speakers among us would still have a trace of accent. And then there's the issue of our dexterity with the only communication and marketing tool that really matters anymore, social media. Even those of us who love social media, who are great at it, me not being one of them, still hold it with a slightly awkward grasp. It's like a tool that was made for some species whose hands are configured just slightly differently. If the generations after us consider social media to be interchangeable with social encounters themselves, we still see it, at least I think most of us do, as more of an add-on. As such, it will never be an instrument that we play with the facility of someone who started as a child. We will forever be adult beginners, fumbling around like someone who's decided to pick up the guitar in midlife. Which is fine, even great, as a hobby. And this brings me to probably the most important point here. The midlife pivot a lot of us are facing right now isn't about finding new hobbies. It's really a matter of survival. It's not the cliched midlife crisis. It's a professional crisis with serious economic stakes. If you're raising a family, which mercifully I am not, and that's another advantage I have, those stakes can be so daunting as to be paralyzing. Because here's the thing. 
If you are now between something like 42 and 56 years old, which is roughly the age range of the Gen X cohort, you have to make this pivot stick. It has to go the distance. This is not the novelty business. You start on a lark in your 20s without caring too much about whether it fails because you have all the time in the world. It's also not the bucket list venture you embark on post-retirement because time is running out and if not now, when? No. If you are in middle age and faced with the prospect of retrofitting your career to the new economy, you need to be able to take it with you all the way to the finish line. And that finish line may be 20 years out still. Most of us aren't retiring anytime soon. And therein lies our particular jam. We're too young to retire, but with some exceptions, of course, too old to naturally finesse the kind of professional pivot that is currently required in most arenas. Again, I'm not saying there aren't people in their 50s or even 60s or higher who aren't making amazing bank on Substack or on YouTube. Some of those people on YouTube are my favorite people. Big surprise. What I am saying is that these mediums tend not to come naturally to most of us. Everywhere I look, I see people my age trying to figure out how to do this. I see them flailing on their video cameras as their heads veer out of the frame. I see them tinkering with their Patreon offerings, agonizing over whether to be on Patreon in the first place. I hear them asking for financial support, apologizing for asking for support, proudly describing their merchandise, self-defensively making fun of their merchandise. I hear their dogs barking in the background while they're recording. I imagine them desperately shooing the dog away, or if they're like me, plying the dog with treats kept strategically at death's side as they try to maintain some semblance of professionalism. But as I speak to you now, I can tell you that as much as I sometimes feel like my inner 25-year-old has taken over my whole being, my outer 51-year-old knows we have to stay the course. Part of that is because I also have an inner 40-year-old who remembers what that fleeting moment of accomplishment felt like near the upper third of the ladder just before the whole thing began collapsing under its own weight. And part of it is because I've come too far to turn around now. Put another way, I'm too far along in this pivot to stop turning. So the economics around the Unspeakable podcast, those haven't really changed, Megan tells me. But that other podcast, The Special Place, which you could find at aspecialplace.substack.com, it's doing quite well. Maybe it was making a bet on ourselves rather than myself that changed things up. Anyway, with Megan, as I think you just heard, you will always get an honest and interesting opinion, whatever the forum. That's it for today's show. The gist is produced by Corey Wara, the AP, Joel Patterson, the SP, and Michelle Pesca, MP. She's CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. 